now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Scooby-Doo, Barney and Bradford. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Hello everybody, welcome to another mini episode of What's in the Basket. I'm Amelia and that's Candace. Hi. And Tiffany isn't with us today because... She died. Like me, yeah, she died. Just like I did. All those months or weeks ago. <sighs> Who the hell knows when this episode is coming out, to be quite honest. Um, I sure as hell don't. Well, it's September now. And you can, you, can, you can post-date it by the fact that I just came back from seeing the Downton Abbey movie. <laughs> yeah, because you're 85 years old. Yes, I am. It Who was a lot Earth? of fun. It was so good. Who on Earth? Is seeing the Downton Abbey movie. I, uh, it was packed. It, it was full. Been... It was a full theater. And oh, and what was the average age of the room? Uh, we were uh, on the lower end, and by we, I mean I went with both of uh, I went with two of my aunts who are both in their sixties, and they were definitely <laughs> on the lower end of the spectrum. Um, there were a couple people our age, and that was about it. I heard a lot of snoring. I think a lot of old people fell asleep <laughs> during this movie. And as we were leaving, I don't want to spoil anything for people who are wa- listening to this episode literally two months from now when it's already like been leaked on the internet but uh they there were these old women walking out in front of us and they were extremely confused by this plot line involving branson and um it's a major plot line in this movie and they could not they just could not figure and i was like if you missed that what the fuck else did you miss in this movie how confused Look, they were okay, perplexed everybody can keep up with the complex layers of the julian fellows production look I'm there as emotional support for three to five downstairs characters, and uh, I, I, I think I did very well in that regard, cheering them on the whole way. It hasn't been relevant for, like, the last five years. Well, and that's what kind of what we think was so fun about it, was that it was like seeing, like, old, distant relatives that you really like, you know, but they live on the other side of the country, and you don't see them that often, and when you do, it's like, oh, it's warm and fuzzy, and then you forget about them forever. Yeah, um, don't relate to that feeling. I don't have any, I'm just making this up, yeah. I'm assuming that's what normal family <laughs> relations are like. Um, I assume so. <laughs> I assume so. I assume people have extended family that they enjoy talking to. But not us. Yeah. But it was good. Anyway. It was very fun. And uh, I'm just, that's a little endorsement. So if you're listening to this in the future, pirate it. <laughs> you don't need to okay. know. You don't need to watch the show. You should just see the movie because I'm, one of my aunts has never seen the show before and she was still able to follow it. So even though it's got like 20 different subplots, <laughs> defending the ginormous cast. Anyway, whatever. So that was good. That was a ringing endorsement from me. Two thumbs up. And all ten of my toes. I promised Todd that I would go pretty hard on you for going to see it. So consider this me me going very hard on you and calling you 85 years old for enjoying paying good money to go see it. Oh, well, like, I can understand watching it illegally, 
But paying money to go okay. see it. Well, in my defense, one, I didn't pay for my ticket because um, I went with my elderly aunts. A betrayal of class. You going to see this movie? But you know, technically giving Julian Fellows money. I know, and I and did he's a, like gentry. So yeah, um, I did feel there is a scene when it's raining and then it stops raining and then again, spoiler alert for people in the future. And then Mary goes, um, "Oh, well, this is you know proof that God is a monarchist." And I was like, "Oh, I can't believe I'm Woof. in the theater watching this," but. <laughs> Also, Daisy keeps basically parroting, you know, communist rhetoric. So I don't know. I went both ways, I guess. Um, I <laughs> Something <laughs> for everyone. Also, I had a bunch of, uh, I had a free popcorn and a free soda, courtesy of the good folks at My Coke Rewards. So I didn't spend a goddamn dime to see that movie. So please uh, suck on that, Julian Fellows. Yeah, sponsor My Coke Rewards so I can keep not paying money to see period pieces. Well, speaking well, of period speaking pieces. Speaking Let's talk about a movie that's this not, is not period a period piece. piece. And today we're doing This Gun for Hire, the Frank Tuttle movie that came out in 1942, which launched Alan Ladd's career. He's very, I don't, I don't Sizable. Want to say short. <laughs> Shut up. I was going to go with the opposite. Um, <laughs> Overcompensate. Over, <laughs> just like Alan Ladd. Um, Ooh. Oh, boy, that's sad. Ooh. Um <laughs> well look we're it's it's an odd dynamic for us usually because candace and i are at opposing ends we'll try and keep the the tension down yes but that's so true we hate each other and well i mean i don't hate you i just hate some of the things that you choose to be um well i hate a lot of things that this movie chooses to be which First of all, is a continued endorsement for the mainstream success of short men who should know better. It really is uh, remarkable that, I don't know if anyone listening to this may, may or may not know this. If you don't, well, I'm glad that I can introduce you to this fact. But Alan Ladd, who is the lead in this movie, well, he's not really the lead, but he is the lead. We'll get into that in a second. Um, was, I think, 5'2", um, which makes him... Very, very short. He's He's got to be. He's at, Was he 5'2", 5'4", 5'2", 5'4", somewhere around that. Around the size of our, our friend um, our friend Tiff. A very small oh, man. What? Way to out Tiff. Yeah, I know. Way to out Tiff is, is, a, is a fun size, a fun size Kit Kat. Um, but what does that make you king size? Yes, king size. Okay. So I'm on Alan Ladd's Wikipedia page, and it says here that reports of his height um, vary from five foot five to five foot nine, uh, with five foot six being the generally most accepted today. I absolutely do not in any way believe that. Well, Veronica Lake was 1.5 meters tall. What is that in not communist? Is that she's 4'11", right? 4'10", 4'11", 4'11". Do a quick conversion right there. I'm doing it for you. It's 5'9". No, it's 4'9". She's 4'9". I can't read numbers. If Veronica Lake is 4'9", which quite frankly is even smaller than I thought, there is absolutely no way on God's green earth that Alan Ladd's five six. I really struggled because well, that means that's that's probably about right because she's 
she's probably about um a foot shorter than Robert Preston. And Press, I think, is probably around like 5'10". Like he's like a big bear. He's kind of like a stocky bear of a dude. So that makes sense. I just, I, I don't like that we just, people, this is kind of a problem that we have with, with film criticism and that so much of it is received wisdom that we just keep um repeating these old judgments that are quite frankly do not possess any merit and one of those judgments is that alan ladd is five foot six (laughs) (laughs) well the thing is did we ever see him standing next to laird krieger because laird krieger was uh, was six foot three no i think you only ever see him sitting next to laird they're sitting next to imagine if they had been standing next to each other there is no for sure there is how tall he was isn't towards the end when he goes to the headquarters of Nitro Chemical, I believe they're like in the same room, but I think it's like shot. I think it's like a, like a canted like Dutch angle or something. So you can't exactly oh, yeah, tell when, what's going on. Yeah. Oh I think God. like, I, I feel like I'm being gaslit. Like on some stairs. Yeah. Like up on, like up on the, like a little mezzanine level it's, before he gets shot. It's very clever. It's absolutely clever, but he, he totally strikes me as being like the same height as like, I mean, there's no way. I mean, cause obviously the most, the, the immediate five foot six example that, that comes to mind is like Buster Keaton. And there's just no way he's as tall as Buster. I, I absolutely reject that. Um, how tall with Eddie Cantor? He kind of strikes me as like Eddie Cantor sized. Uh, Eddie Cantor was five eight. Well, that's not right. That's also not true. <laughs> I've seen Eddie Cantor standing next to the Goldwyn girls, and he's not 5'8". <laughs> this is all lies. I can't believe this. My whole life is just crumbling before me. If you were to ask me off the cuff what exactly this movie is about, I could vaguely tell you. It is a little bit convoluted in how like it's set up, because there's like Alan Ladd, who has the most goth name in modern like cinema, which is Philip Raven. <laughs> Love and <laughs> Julian Blackbird McKnight. <laughs> and he's like the cold-blooded killer, you know, hitman for hire type. Yeah, he's a gun for hire, as yeah. as indicated by the title. Yeah. As yeah, indicated by the title, which we should mention is based on a gun for sale by Graham Greene. Um so it doesn't make sense why this plot is as convoluted as it is. Well, all Graham Greene plots are fairly convoluted, I'm not going to lie. But this seems like it was more the filmmakers. Oh, absolutely. Then. Absolutely. Um but then the film it kind of goes into this chemical conspiracy plot with like senators involved. It gets very weird very quickly. There's a lot of double crossing. Um, the fact that Veronica Lake, who is a nightclub magician, is recruited by a U.S. senator to be a spy when it's like there are professional espionage agents. I mean, it has to happen for the for the plot to exist, but it doesn't mean that I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> it's weird, and she's also very bad at it. Yeah. And she, and she's just coincidentally happens to be uh, engaged to a LAPD officer detective boy who just happens to be in San Francisco on vacation when this whole plot is unfolding. Like again, I just you know whatever it's convoluted, but um, okay. So so the plot basically is I have the plot in front of me. Okay, all right, good because I don't. Philip Philip so. <laughs> Raven recovers the stolen chemical formula. Um, for his employer, who is Willard Gates, who's played by Led Krieger, who is called Bill Gates in the film, which is very unsettling. And then uh, Led Krieger double-crosses him, like he pays him in Mark Bills, he double-crosses him, 
and Raven is then out to get revenge. So the police detective who is after Raven is coincidentally the boyfriend of Veronica Lake's character. And then there's a whole thing where there's two very bad musical numbers in this that she's forced to sing. If there's trouble in your love life, well, my friend, get wise. For as we magicians would say, now you see it, now you don't. It goes hocus pocus, alakazam. That's love. That's love. But it goes into this whole bit where Laird Krieger is watching Veronica Lake to hire her for something. I'm not quite sure why that scene happens. I just don't understand, like, what Laird Krieger's job is if he needs to recover a stolen chemical formula. I know. But also is in a position to hire Veronica Lake in any capacity as a magician. I feel like having, um, you know, uh, this this position at this chemical company that, you know, I mean, we're going to get into this later, but spoiler alert, um, you know, is engaged in high treason against the U.S. government. It, I feel like you wouldn't have enough time to have a side gig, a side hustle, hmm. as it were, as a nightclub entrepreneur. I just, I feel, again, not a lot of hours in the day. Uh, and so essentially then the senator who knows of this whole big conspiracy, hires Ellen to spy on Laird Krieger. Ellen is Veronica Lake, by the way. Then, like, all, all the normal noir espionage happens. Ellen is on the train going back to Los Angeles, and on the train she meets Raven, where Laird Krieger sees both of them together. And at this point, everyone is on the lookout for Raven and his fucked up wrist, <laughs> which we'll get into... <laughs> Um, and then he, Laird assumes that Ellen and Raven are working together. And then he like very quickly turns on Ellen and tries to kill her. And Raven then is, saves Ellen and then they go on the run together. And then this really dark bit happens in the train yard that we'll talk about. And then it all sort of comes to a head where Raven confronts the leader of the, or the, CEO or whatever. The old guy in charge of the chemical <laughs> factory. Old bitch in chief. Old bitch in chief. And um, there's a whole big confrontation and shootout and everything kind of culminates there. You can watch it and uh, have a better understanding. Barely. <laughs> I've seen this movie probably six times and I, I, it wasn't until we were watching it that I was like, oh, okay, all right, I vaguely remember some of this intrigue. But it's like, for me, it's not so much about the plot that you enjoy this movie. It's kind of the cast of characters and the mood and everything that makes me enjoy it. Yeah, because it's a because it's a noir, baby. Because the plot, I certainly don't understand <laughs> understand the plot. <laughs> Given that I've seen this film how many times I can't accurately accurately tell you what <laughs> it's not in this movie. as as convoluted as or like incomprehensible as something like the big sleep, but TCM uh used to have I'm assuming they still have it, they don't play it as much as any, anymore, but they used to have this feature at where it was like this kind of short bit where they ask a bunch of film historians to explain the plot of the big sleep and no one can. And <laughs> that's how I feel watching this movie. And I mean, obviously, The Big Sleep is like on a whole other level 
Yeah. And the big sleep feels like you're watching a movie in like Hungarian or something. Like, you know, I'm not absorbing <laughs> any of it. But this movie definitely has that same, that same noir sense of like, well, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's compelling, but I, I'm completely at sea. I'm adrift the whole time <laughs> in terms of where everyone is, what everyone is doing, who knows what. That's part of its charm, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think what it does it for me is the chemical angle really throws me off because yes. it's just like, doesn't need to be there. Like for this plot to function, it no. doesn't necessarily ha- need to have that. All it needs to, not. all it needs to be is like the the double cross, literally. And which, I, I feel like you know, happens. It, I feel like the chemical angle is literally only there so that um, you can have like almost like a redemptive angle for Alan Ladd because it's like the chemical company is like selling their war profit and selling secrets to the Japanese. And then like, then it's like, Oh, okay, well it's fine that he's, that he's planning to go in there and just go postal on everyone who works in this chemical company. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise be like, hmm, that seems a bit excessive. Why don't you just, you know, it is thoroughly enjoyable. Though. It's a, it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Yeah. And I, I for one enjoy the, the magic interludes with Veronica Lake. And I know we, we differ in that. Oh no, I enjoy them. I just don't enjoy the song. I honestly, I am very impressed with her magic skills and I do wonder how long she spent learning to do that magic because there's like I can't think of any way trick photography would be able to get away with doing all of the stuff she does it's not like a David Bowie and Labyrinth situation where it's like different hands are doing the tricks it's like very clearly her hands with those terrible yeah. nails doing all these tricks, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, um, it's it's funny that we <laughs> couldn't figure out what the fuck else Frank Tuttle ever directed because the name didn't, you know, wasn't coming to mind. It turns out, of course, that he made uh, he made Charlie McCarthy Detective, nineteen thirty nine. So, and he also made uh, a number, I'm not another one. A, I know a handful of uh, Eddie Cantor movies. So uh, I I can see kind of where that like editing that would that would be required for something like uh, a ventriloquist movie and the eddie Cantor movies obviously involve um like a lot of <sighs> there's a lot of trick editing in eddie Cantor movies especially something like he directed roman scandals which has a lot of flash forwards and like flashbacks and because he's you know dreaming the whole plot and um anyway so i could just see where a little bit of that technical acumen would come into play but mm-hmm. I can't explain whether or not uh, Veronica Lake actually had any magical abilities. I know she did witchcraft <laughs> because of, I saw I Married That's a Witch That's another once. movie with a very strange plot. You know who was supposed to be in I Married a Witch? I will kill you if you say <laughs> what I think you're going to yes. say. Yes, yes. Uh, Joel McRae uh, reputedly said that life is too short to make two films with Veronica Lake and turn the part down. <laughs> Fucking hell. Because <laughs> you find her, find her I mean, extremely difficult to work with. So, Well, know. I think that was like a common thing. Yeah, no, it's I, definitely... I think a, a lot of people had trouble working with her. But, you know, I think I think that a lot of Hollywood can be very unkind to... Oh, absolutely. Unconventional, peop- unconventional people. And so... Women in she particular. She probably wasn't, wasn't as bad as everyone made her out to be. She was just trying to get ahead. And honestly, if I was in her situation in such a hostile environment... I'd be a bitch too. I also never really, and I don't know a lot about Veronica Lake, so I'm probably going to get, you know, dragged to hell for this, but um, I I never really get the impression watching Veronica Lake that she particularly enjoys movie acting, you know? I kind of get a sense of boredom from her, so I can see her definitely not being, like, as dedicated a professional as as other people because it's just, like, a thing that she's doing, and Mm -hmm. she just happens to be 
a magnetic and commanding screen personality and that it's maybe just kind of a coincidence mm. i don't know maybe she, maybe she wasn't getting the parts that she wanted um i mean I, again i can't blame a woman in 1940s hollywood for being disgruntled with any aspect of her work environment yeah all of her all of her backstage shenanigans aside there are there are really only a couple people who when you hear about them being difficult to work with it seems to be a real recurring problem and usually it's because it lends into some sort of almost like criminal behavior like frederick march or something (laughs) (laughs) so you know there's no boycott of frederick march movies in the same way that people seem to think of oh veronica like it's so hard to work with (laughs) yeah exactly like a lot of men get away with a lot more than yeah like in Hollywood, which makes me fucking so annoyed. Uh, yeah. But anyway, anyway, miss it. We'll save the misandry for later. I think what also adds to this film the miasma of this plot line uh, <laughs> is that I think Tiff mentioned it when we were watching it. She was just like, all the scenes with Laird Krieger feel like they're for a completely different movie. Oh, I love it. Oh. It's like he's filming for a universal horror picture. It's like it's he's so... filming Laura is what's going on. <laughs> over, <laughs> over the top and dramatic. And then all of the scenes with Alan Ladd are so, I mean, it's beautifully done. But they're so lovingly lit. The way that we have the shafts of slanted light going across his face in some scenes it's very very noir very typical of the the style and it's just not seen in any other portion of the film it's only on alan i know whoever the dp was um and again i don't know who that is maybe you do since i think you have the imdb page open had a big old big old crush on alan ladd alan ladd in this movie is lit in the way that i think of um romantic heroes of like the mid-30s being lit he's lit almost like Charles Boyer in 1936 or something. You know, he's not lit the way a man is lit in in noir. It's really interesting. He is lit like a woman. The cinematographer was John F. Seitz. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Seitz does have a very particular lighting style. But I I don't think of a Seitz movie where the male lead is lit as lovingly. Absolutely not. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it's also interesting to see. um, I always talk about this, but some of my favorite movies are uh, encapsulate the moment in which you get to see uh, a movie star emerge. Because Mm -hmm. movie stars are, again, a rare phenomenon. Of all the people who ever had a starring role in a picture, how many of them ever turned out to be like indelible screen personalities? Now, Lad is absolutely one of them. And just from the very first moment you, you see him, you know, this is, he's a movie star. And it's really incredible to see that happen. To see that unfold in real time is is wild. Yeah, it is. It's like you can see, I think that the the way that his character is and is treated and is in the movie is given the room to do what he does, even though he's not, he's like fourth built. Yeah. You can, you can see that even when they were making it, they were just like, ah, yeah, this is like. That's the man. This is, this, this is, is going to be big. This is the good boy. He, I mean, uh, with his very short arms. This is our, he our does, man. He has such funny proportions. Like his, he, they have. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, costume work going on in this that is attempting to make his forearms look longer than they are. Honestly, it's all very like it's very very weird because all the characters that you see around Alan Ladd are shorter than him, which must have been the like the casting call for this 
must have been like you must be under five two. <laughs> they to call be it central casting in this movie, and they said, like, "Send me, send me the the Wizard of Oz uh, core. The let's munchkins. get the, let's get the band back together. Let's get the Munchkins back together for this Alan Ladd movie. We got this kid named Alan Ladd, and he's he's just a little smidge of a thing." <sighs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I, I again, I, I love movie stars that are, that are, have some physical, I don't want to say like irregularity because that's, that's rude to my short brethren, but, um, something about them that's distinctive and interesting. And Alan Lass height, I mean, people make jokes about it, obviously. And sometimes I do in, in, engage in some of those jokes, but, uh, it, it's unique. Sometimes. Sometimes. It's unique. And, um, so you get to see him just burst forth onto the screen in like a blaze of, you know, kitten feeding, gently stroking glory. Severe widow, widow's peak. Severe widow's peak. And, and Laird Krieger plays his scenes with Alan Latt in such a bizarre, I mean, really, that is the, that is the great romance at the core of this movie. It's absolutely Truly. not Veronica Lake and Robert Preston. No. The scene where Krieger asks Alan Ladd how he feels when he kills somebody and he's just kind of like panting. And, uh, mm-hmm. then he's like, here, take my money. You want to go to the orchestra? Here are some tickets. Take your girl. You have a girl, right? Or do you have a friend? I see your point, of course. If the bills were bad, you couldn't very well complain to the police, could you? I'm my own police. What do you mean? What would you do? First, I'd find out who you're stooging for. The shy boy. And I'd give him what I gave Baker. Don't I? I can't stand violence. Then I'd whittle off a little of that blubber. Such a warped sense of humor. Oh, I forgot. A little gift for me. Orchestra seats to the best show in town. (laughs) I ought to know. It cost me plenty. That's my one vice, backing leg shows. No, thanks. Go ahead, take your girl. You must have a girl or a friend. And it's like a little wink. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. It's just, it's so explicit. Um, I mean, I guess it's not explicit because people didn't know it. So uh, it's it's extremely implicit. It's explicitly implicit, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's so funny. Um, I have a note uh, in my notes directly under that. It says rushing out to relieve himself. Oh, right. And then Laird Krieger. And then he's like, oh, I got to go. I got to go. And then he just kind of like just runs out of the room. <laughs> Raven. How do you feel when you're doing this? I feel fine. Well, be good. Like all of the scenes, weird. Like it's a different movie. It's a different movie, and then it's like anyway, here's when just in his house, Veronica Lake and Robert like, Preston at the fair. It's basically like when they like when Veronica is in his you know dining room having dinner with him, and it's like fucking Dracula's mansion in Transylvania with the huge fireplace and all the 
big decadent, you know, candlesticks and all this shit. This is like, what is it? It happening? is so dark and it's all like really heavy wood and it's it's storming outside and then he has like stained glass windows and it reminds me of like it's very I don't want to say Norman Desmond because that's such a cliche, but it's like where I imagine like Francis X. Bushman lived in nineteen nineteen, somewhere <laughs> up in the Hollywood Hills. It is it's obviously a set, but it's such an excellent set. That house tells you everything you need to know about Larry Krieger's character. God, what a what a fun what a visually fun movie. And there's not like really a lot of sets in this movie. No, there's like his apartment, there's the nightclub where Veronica Lake is it's like a fish sailors. I know, it's like a nautical theme. It's called it's called like the Neptune Room or something, the Neptune Club. Yeah, it's a nautical themed nightclub. Which is better than the slavery themed nightclub from Vivacious Lady. Yeah. Um, my other yeah. favorite themed nightclub. I don't know if the youth will remember this, but many moons ago, um, the only version we had of Vivacious Lady, the Ginger Rogers Jimmy Stewart movie from nineteen thirty eight, was I believe a VHS rip. And then it came out on DVD and you could see what used to be just kind of like blobs in the background. You could realize that Ginger worked at a plantation slavery themed nightclub and none of us had realized that before. It was a shock. Anyway, that moment sticks with me. That sticks with me like the first time you see the train crash in the general or something. You know, that realizing that it was a plantation (laughs) slavery themed nightclub for me is up with, you know. Like, huh? What? what oh, fuck. Yeah, no. Yeah, it is a very, it's a very jarring thing. I mean, like, on some level, you do expect a level of racism in a lot of classic films because it was, it's very of the time. Yeah. Um, and it's not, definitely not something to excuse it, but it's just like, when you see it like that, you're like, oh, It's like, Jesus. oh, right, shit, this really is an all-white industry with no input from anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't give a um, fuck about alienating uh, black viewers. Yeah, no. Um, but anyway. We are very, very anti-RKO. I know, which is so hard noted. because there are a lot of RKO movies that I really do enjoy, but. Um, yeah. But they just made a lot of decisions. They just made that a lot of good. decisions. Yeah. I think the problem is that RKO did not really have like a strong um guiding hand in the form of somebody like um like a Thalberg or a Goldwyn. There was no one really at the top making, you know, calling the shots. There was no Carl Lemley. And I think uh, RKO kind of suffered for that. Um, but this is not, well, yeah, I don't really think, an RKO movie, they so. Went out of <laughs> Why are we talking about RKO? So. Is this a Columbia picture? Where is this? Is this Columbia? Is this Paramount? Columbia? I think it's Paramount. I'm going to guess Paramount. Am I right? Yeah, it's Paramount. Yes. Fabulous. God, I'm so smart. <laughs> Leave that in. <laughs> Again, another so self-compliment. We're all about self-love. We are self-love on this podcast, unless you're Alan Ladd. Uh, so what are some of the, oh, we also noted that during that scene when Veronica and Mr. Krieger are at his home, that he has he has a cobbler shaker, as we in in the biz call it, um, literally full of milk. And I don't know what kind of cocktail he's trying to make because <laughs> Yeah, what is it? Is it he first I was like, oh like, I Russian, but I'm like, that's not really milk? cream. It's just it looks like milk. <laughs> and I know they didn't obviously really use milk because milk is gonna curdle under the hot lights, you know, prop one oh one. But it sure as fuck looks like it's a shaker full of milk. Like, what is he going to make? Well, I mean, who knows what, like, weird shit they they drank. Oh, God. No, absolutely. No, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, it could be anything. What else happens? Well, I think this film offers up 
some of the more iconic noir imagery that's not like so much associated with people's general perception of noir, but the whole scene at the end where Alan Ladd uses the gas mask disguise to break <sighs> into the chemical plant and switch places. Incredible. It's, it's so good. It's so visually striking. And I, th- I just think it's really iconic imagery to be seeing because a lot of people now think of noir as a genre and i'm gonna say genre because it is a genre it is a genre people people used to get angry at me when i said it was a genre they're just like it's a style of film and is that not what genre is it's like guess what also is a genre old dark house is a genre you know but yeah a lot of people have the misconception that noir is you know about detectives about crime and this does have crime in it obviously but it's Bucket not loads. so much a, it's it's not a detective story no. it's a crime story it's like it's kind of like how gun crazy is considered a noir and like i mean they're just noir doesn't just tackle such a narrow area no, it's, it's, absolutely. A, it's a feeling it's a mood it's like a different vibe yeah now i was just gonna say that also people think of noir as being like a post-war phenomenon because of a lot of the disillusionment that arises after the war but I think mm. a lot of noir is is that it's most effective when it is a product of the of wartime paranoia because I think that paranoia versus disillusionment divide creates kind of like an interesting transition in the same way that it's like I don't know well people will say that they think you know that the best time for for horror is a lot of people like fifties horror because they like the whole you know sub subversion of this uh, you know kind of placid suburban environment and I think that. Some of the best horror comes out of the 1940s when there's a lot of uncertainty about what may or may not be the end of the world. Um, well, it's and- the same. The same could be said for the 1970s when a lot of horror came out because the 1970s were fucking crazy. So I think that a lot of people forget about the context of film and how film is actually a response to what's happening around it at the time. Like, it's really obvious in some films, especially in the 40s, like in Arise, My Love is directly responding to stuff that is happening at the time. In lesser ways, so is this movie. It's a response to, like, it's 1942, so obviously the US had just joined the war, and so there was a period of uncertainty, and obviously a lot of mistrust against specifically the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So that's where I guess that plot point is building towards. So it's like it's definitely a reflection of that paranoia and that uncertainty that was happening. And I guess removing film from its context yeah. weakens its impact. If people also, I think a lot of it is these people don't want to admit that film is, is not only a popular medium, but in certainly within the studio era the context of the studio era it's a populist medium mm-hmm. and uh, like you said a lot of the most powerful studio productions are a direct 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 response because it's the zeitgeist it's it's the most immediate people also don't realize the uh, the speed with which a lot of these movies were produced a book can take two years to go from manuscript to finished form but uh, a movie can be wrapped in under a month and so it can speak to the current consciousness in a way that nothing else can and again i'm specifically talking about the studio era and because of all of the immense like production resources that they have, plus you know very few 
labor laws um, dictating how long people could be kept on the set and working within the span of one day. Yeah, no, I just, I think that this movie in particular, I mean, the way in which it, it utilizes the war and suspicion and this this heightened sense of surveillance, that's a consistent theme throughout the movie. The idea that people are looking, mm-hmm. people are looking for Raven and people can look for him in the ways that they do because of this, you know, patriotic, almost informing on your neighbor kind of spirit that's welled up. People are not afraid of getting involved in what they think might be somebody acting against American interests in a way that people would have been in the past when people were more mistrustful of the government during the Depression or when people just preferred to, like, it's not my business, you know, kind of a deal. It's like everywhere yeah. he goes, people are people are looking for him, people recognize him, and people are aware of him in a way that would not be possible at, like, any other juncture within the 20th century when these movies mm. are being produced. Yeah. I did think it was really interesting especially for the time that whole scene where they're in the train carriage hiding from the police as they're closing in and then Alan Ladd has this like recovered memory or he reveals his past and like his the effect of trauma on him and why he is the way that he is oh man was hanged my mother died right after that and I went to live with that woman my aunt Beat me from the time I was three till I was 14. One day she caught me reaching for a piece of chocolate. She was saving it for a cake. Crummy piece of chocolate. She hit me with a red hot flat iron. Smashed my wrist with it. Grab the knife. I let her have it. In the throat. They stuck a label on me. Killer. Shoved me in a reform school and they beat me there too. But I'm glad I killed her. Which is so unlike anything else yeah. in the rest of the movie. And like it's like a his own character analyzing himself and his actions and his motives. Which it's rare to see in film, particularly in this kind of film, because usually we're pretty clear on characters' motivations without them being clear of their own motivations. But Raven is like almost acutely aware of why what he makes is him tick. Yeah, the way that he is, and like why he can one minute be stroking a cat and the next minute be fucking killing it. Which made me very upset. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, that's a that's a trigger warning for this movie. Um, yeah, which is again, it's it's fairly it's fairly su- su- surprising, I guess, because animal abuse is, is was at the time one of the few things that that was. In, you know, I believe that was under the code. It's 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 interesting, and also because so much of Nora is about like exploring the subconscious, and um, yeah. And so much of the time, it's left up to audience interpretation. Uh, like a good example exactly. would be like one of my favorite scenes ever, which is the scene in Key Largo where Claire Trevor sings Moan and Low. And you just see this horrid, fragile husk of a woman who's a drunk and she can't sing 
And her whole miserable life is just unfurled before you as a viewer. And it's a very uncomfortable sequence to watch. And again, that's part of what makes it a quintessential noir sequence. But it's, again, you understand everything about that character. And it's all it's all laid out for you. But it's not, there is no um, obvious psychological, um, there's no psychoanalysis in that movie. And what you see in This Gun for Hire, those sequences where Alan Ladd explores his childhood abuse is like anticipatory of like the Manchurian candidate or something where it or where it really, you know, goes in depth about why people are motivated to commit the evils that they do. It's, it's such an interesting movie. It is. And and like I I guess like some people might think it's just them trying to explain one why he's a killer, but also how he, his wrist got to be the way that it is. But I think it's a bit more than that man there's just so many layers to this movie um you have that i get that you have that revelation of abuse you have you have the fact that a woman confronts a man for stealing from her pocketbook when she's in public and it's like such a brazen which she's like give me back you know she's got that whole like tatum o'neill and paper moon like i want my 200 dollars thing like give me back my five bucks and it's just like she's just such a brazen it's and i think i also appreciate that in this veronica lake even though she's she does get into some scrapes, especially with Led Krieger. She is sort of in control yeah. of what's happening. Like she's leaving her clues for Robert Preston to follow her and she's able to talk to Raven and work with him to get herself out of this hostage situation. Like she can relate to him, she can empathize with him, and then she uses that to save herself and to eventually help the outcome be what it is. Yeah. You know, I really like that. I think that a lot of people class it as like women in noir, the femme fatale type or whatever. And it's like it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Lake for me is is never a convincing femme femme fatale. And um I think that's more because she has such a strong intellect that um, it's not, I don't know. It's like, there's no, there's no real, like, like there's no manipulation on the part of a character like Ellen. She is just, she's acting, she's thrust to the role of a mediator and, and, Mm. but she almost seems to relish it. Like she is given an out like multiple times during the movie. I mean, she could go to Robert Preston and explain this insane situation at literally any minute. And, you know, she could give up performing in seedy nightclubs and she could, you know, just become a housewife. Like she repeatedly expresses an interest in doing, she wants to be married and she wants to have a child. But she's got some other shit she's got to take care of first. <laughs> mm, yeah. And one of them involves war profiteering. I mean, it's just like, uh, yeah. she's just such a, no, I like the femme fatale for me is just such a difficult, difficult concept sometimes to wrap my mind around because it's so much of a male gazy kind of thing. Yeah. Thinking that a woman's motivations always, you know, boil down to wanting to entrap a man. And that is true in a lot of noir, just because of the context in which it's created and because it is a male-driven genre. But Veronica Lake is just much too complex of a screen personality for that to really sit, um, for that to sit well with me. Well, and I think that a lot of, obviously a lot of noir criticism and a lot of noir development, it's obviously done by men and perpetuated by men and created by men. So looking at some noirs as a female and understanding that there are possibly more complexity yeah. to female characters in noir than perhaps other male counterparts might yeah. <laughs> discover, um, it's frustrating because it's like, 
they're all all women in noirs, femme yeah. fatale type, the Lauren Bacall blow on the whistle kind of femme fatale. And it's like that's just it's not that simple. It's so much of that is just also like a, a simplification and then a generalization directly from like Bacall's screen image. Sometimes I think that's the only noirs that some people have ever seen are are Bacall. I've seen an image of. Uh, yeah, I don't think they've even seen it. No, I mean I was thinking when I was thinking of other other women complex noir women you could compare Veronica Lake to I was thinking I was thinking Carol Landis I was thinking uh I was thinking Anne Savage I was thinking Kathy O'Donnell Kathy O'Donnell who is definitely a very very minor star in terms of the history of film but her her noirs have that same Veronica Lake tinge of you can just feel there's this this enormous um iceberg you know um of mm-hmm. of rational thinking of which very very little is on the surface because of the limits of the scripts that that they're given. But I just, yeah, it's just I don't know. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think it's like a lot of people. It's like when people think you know you're not going to relate to this as an Australian, but when people um talk about the golden age of television <laughs> and they bring up I Love Lucy and they well it's like but Lucy was always exceptional because Lucille Ball was always an exceptional woman, an exceptional artist. And there's a reason why Lucy has endured and other people have fallen by the wayside because of the immense, um, her, 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 her genius. And, um, it doesn't, I, so I think that's it. I think it, people think of 50s comedy, think of Lucy, people think of, of Noir, they think of Bacall, and then they think of Veronica Lake, but they don't think they've ever seen a Veronica Lake movie. Because she's not who people think she is. <laughs> they think of the hair. Maybe that's no. it. They think of the hair. They and think, they, think the they understand. You know? I mean, Which, it's great hair. I wish it is I fabulous hair. hair. I, it's really incredible hair. hair. And um, <laughs> it's also interesting how much hair is tied into noir. Think of how many noirs play with interesting hair, especially noirs in color. Um, I'm thinking, you know. Well, like even like in Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. That wig like, that, that, that Stanwick wig. has. And then there's there's Rita Hayworth and, you know, Lady from Shanghai. Lana Turner in The Postman Always Rings oh, Twice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it works on the same level that light in noir does. Like yeah. That. There are so many cinematic elements that make up a noir. I just sort of know, like, Ava Gardner and The Killers. Like, yeah. There's so many aspects to make up a noir. It's just so frustrating when it's reduced to just this one kind of, like, the, the visual acuity in, in a noir. And I think Tiff, Tiff touches upon this in her Laura episode, which people, if you haven't heard, you should go back and listen to. Um, but Laura, the idea that noir involves, because of the fact that, again, most of them are B-movies, most of them are coming from minor studios, very few notable noirs, again, come from Warner Brothers and MGM. And of course, those are a lot of the times the noirs we remember, but a lot of interesting noirs happening in Poverty Row, it's happening at the minors, it's happening over at Universal, which again, is a complete non-player at this point in time. People think of the glossy noirs. People always think, whenever people associate Warner Brothers with noir, I have a particular problem with it because so much of that is like, is like that. I think people conflate like almost like the women's melodrama with noir. It's like, no, a Betty Davis movie isn't a noir. Betty Davis never made a real noir unless you count Baby Jane as a noir, I guess. But uh, anyway, whatever. That's just, no, um, I can't think of a Betty Davis noir. But, but noir as a genre involves so many, um, people who have come from Europe fleeing various, you know, regimes there. Horrors. Horrors. Depression, that I think noir people always talk about the pessimism of noir and I think the pessimism is very important and I think that's that's part of the, the tonal shift that makes noir so engaging but at the same time it's also sometimes really exciting to see all of the trappings of a Hollywood studio picture in terms of the absolute best lighting, the absolute best editing, the absolute best costumes, etc., utilized in a way to make a statement um, about the world that is very different from your traditional Hollywood picture. 
people just reduce it to being, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think of, I think of those really, I, I don't know. I think of Evelyn Keys and the Prowler. I think of, I just, there's so many performances in noir that it's like don't get enough credence because people are fixated on this very narrow idea of what noir is. Well, we've got an episode coming up where we talk about the best noir of all time, in my opinion, which is The Night of the Hunter. Oh, yes. Which, a lot of people don't consider it to be a noir, but it is noir. It's a pastoral noir. Yes, absolutely. Um, like that is in no sense of the word a traditional noir, but it's so compelling and it's so beautiful and it's like the most lyrical movie ever made. I can't believe Lawton never directed another movie. That's one of the greatest tragedies of honestly, all of film history. Honestly, the fact history. that that was not a hit at the time. It's excruciating. It makes, it's so... It makes like, you want to slap your own grandparents, is what it makes you <laughs> want to do. My grandparents are probably personally responsible because they did not go to movies in the 1950s because they had five children. They're at fault. They're at fault. God. But again, it's like every the best noirs, I think, are, are non-typical noirs. If, if people yeah. don't consider... Night of the Hunter Noir, then it's like, look at something like, uh, They Live By Night. I mean, They Live By Night is, uh, you, you'd have to take out, like, all, like, the lovers on the run stories. You'd have to, and I get it. I totally get it. I love sometimes the, the kind of, like, the jankiness of noir. I do love it when the, when the, when the strings start to show, when the budgetary constraints show. But I think people discount Night of the Hunter simply because it is so beautiful. And that's dumb and wrong. Noir is, it's so good and people really should explore it a little bit more than they perhaps do. There are obviously a lot of good ones that are about detectives and there are about police and crime and all of that. But like, you know, there's a lot of yeah. unexplored avenues. And this movie um, also has a strong detective plot. But I'd say it's probably atypical of the way it's It's absolutely atypical, yeah. Because Robert Preston, he's really, he's trying to get his life together, but he's not trying to get his life together in, say, like, yeah. a bogey character no. would. He's just trying to get his, his girlfriend to stop doing card tricks in nightclubs out in San Francisco. And at one yeah, point, he, he's insulting somebody and he says, ah, oh, go milk a duck. Remember, we want him, dead or alive. Preferably the former, after what he did to our paymaster. And quickly, too, or we'll go higher up. Go milk a duck. <laughs> so that's not something you hear in most wars. Robert Preston, I have to do a little Preston thing just because I love Robert Preston. And Robert Preston is a child in this movie. I think Robert Preston is like, I want to say maybe 23 in this movie, 23, 24, which is disgusting because he looks like a 30-year-old man. Yeah, he looks very old. He looks extremely old. He looks 40, honestly. He looks way older. He looks like, he makes Alan Ladd look like He's on the junior varsity girls softball team. He is so old in this. Um, but Robert Preston is also interesting because I think like he's second build in this. And it's like probably because it, Blake's still kind of an unknown, right? Because she's done Sullivan Travels, but she's not, I don't think she's, 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 a, she's, I think she's more of a personality than a star, I would guess. I don't know if she's really a box office well, star at this she, point. Her career began in 1939. So she's about three years into it. Yeah. So and at this point, well, I was just thinking, just because Robert Preston at the time was... She just had a big breakthrough with I Wanted Wings and Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I couldn't remember which one it is. I was like, ah, oh, God, there's... I was thinking William Holden, but 
it was not coming through. I wanted wings. Yeah, exactly. No, um, what am I I not thinking about William Holden? But, uh, Robert Preston is really interesting to me because he, he at the time was making a lot of B movies. So I guess he was kind of like a reliable box office kind of guy, probably for like really like minor successes. Like he big movies where he plays like Mounties and like Lumberjacks and that kind of shit. Robert Preston, by the way, was. 24 he was 24 24 that's what i thought because i know he's he's 21 in um union pacific with uh with barbara stanwick and joel mccray so uh robert preston is really interesting to me because robert preston in this movie and the robert preston that later on becomes like a star are like two completely different screen personalities (laughs) and um (laughs) it's funny because i always like we talk about like how in this movie you see alan lydon you're like instantly like oh god that's a movie star well it's like robert preston will become a movie star but he's going to incubate for like 30 years before he becomes a real movie star like that's insane actually the more i think about it no, I love I love Robert Preston. It's also funny to see a movie in which Veronica Lake, who can't sing, sings, and then Robert Preston, who later will go on to become one of the most famous musical stars of his generation, has no songs because he's Robert Preston. And he's playing a you know a shoe leather kind of guy. He's not. Um, I would like to point out that there was a remake of this Gun of a Hire called Shortcut to Hell, directed by Jimmy Cagney. His only directorial <laughs> effort. No, I have never seen. Who's in that? Um, Robert Ivers. Okay. Literally, no one else I know. Literally. Oh my god. What's it? What's it called again? Shortcut to Hell. Shortcut to Hell. Nineteen fifty-seven. Oh man, that is so weird. And oh, the only person in this movie I know of is Yvette Vickers. I only know that because she was a Playmate of the Month. <laughs> Oh, and also because she was the one who was mummified. Oh my god. Um, so Yvette Vickers, who is in that Jimmy Cagney, This Gun for Hire remake, um, this is, she, this is actually really sad, but she, um, had not <laughs> been- You're telling it, you're telling it with <gasps> a bridled glee. She had not I been seen by anyone in like a year. And it turned out that like, then they, they went up to her house in Benedict Canyon, which is a neighborhood, it's like a Beverly Hills neighborhood. And then like her body, her mummified body was inside. That's so creepy and sad. Oh my god. That is so... I can't believe we just made that connection. I'd completely forgotten about that. Okay, anyway, that's sad. But um, good for Tag <laughs> that he made a movie that no one has ever seen or ever talked about. And I that mean, was not so that weird. good for him because it didn't go that well considering there's no info about it on the internet. Not everyone can be uh, Cornell Wilde. Not everyone can be <laughs> as multi-talented as... We're wild for Cornell Wilde. We're wild for Cornell Wilde on this podcast. I'm just plugging that because uh, for Noir November, I will be doing um, The Big Combo. This movie is directed by Frank Tuttle, and as I briefly alluded to earlier, he made uh, he made a couple Eddie Cantor movies. He made Kid Boots, um, which has Clara Bow. Um, he made uh, he made Roman Scandals, which at some point we have to talk about because Roman Scandals is really one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he made a couple other movies. He made uh, he actually made the 1935 version of The Glass Key with George Raft. Which was then remade with Alan Ladd and Victoria Lake. Veronica Lake. Oh my God, Victoria Lake. See, this is what happens when Tiff isn't here. She's like... She is our rock. She is our Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And um, okay, so he also, he makes... Okay, anyway, so uh, getting my life back together. He makes a couple... He makes a lot of Bing Crosby movies, a lot of Bing Crosby musicals. He made a Charlie Mm -hmm. MacArthur movie with Edgar Bergen. Very important to me, obviously, because of the ventriloquist dummy. He made No Limit. Uh, with Clara Bow and Thelma Todd. So he directed a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting movies. You know, he, he made a lot of silence. Yeah, I have seen his name on a lot of credit cards, like not credit cards, title cards. <laughs> 
fucking hell. I don't even have the excuse are of you being committing, late at night. Are you committing identity theft, maybe? Or, or fraud of some variety? His Wikipedia yeah, page my- says Lovers in Quarantine, 1925, starring B.B. Daniels and the other Harrison Ford, which I always thought is kind of sad for the first Harrison Ford, Ford the Elder, <laughs> because... First of all, I don't know how the Screen Actors Guild allowed Harrison Ford to take that name when there was already someone else, whereas Michael J. Fox has to be Michael J. Like, there was a whole-ass movie star named Harrison Ford, and... <laughs> Snazzy Lee's. And we also directed uh, The Canary Murder Case and The Green Murder Case, with their Philo Vance movies, um, with William Powell, um... So he's got an interest, he's got a, definitely got an interesting filmography, there's a lot of, there's a lot of genres in there. This Gun for Hire is such, a, again, a huge tonal shift from something like, you know, Waikiki Wedding that I'm actually really surprised at how well this movie works. But again, this movie also does benefit from a lot of very good lighting, good editing. You know, it has a good story underneath it. And I think, that obviously, just the power of the actors, the ensemble cast. Oh, is, yeah, everybody's great. It's um, so good. And good work on bringing it back to what we're meant to be talking about. This is such a disparate app. It's going to be interesting to listen to. We need Tiff to lend any sort of... um structure coherence. to this coherence yeah i was gonna go with something uh a little less bleak but yeah in terms of uh the extended cast all i have to say is um i like the old man when he refers to the japanese as his boyfriends i think in <laughs> reference to laird krieger like laird krieger's boyfriends are the entire imperial forces of japan i mean cool content <laughs> i enjoyed that yeah cool um apparently Yvonne DeGallo has an uncredited one-line role. What? Apparently she just says, she has one line, cigarettes uh, in the Neptune Club scene. God, I'll have to look back at that. I love Yvonne DeCarlo. That's funny. Also, Mark Mark Lawrence, um, who plays Tommy, Laird Krieger's chauffeur slash kind of right-hand man slash possible lover i don't know his goon it's so weird his goon. it's such a his, weird relationship it's, it's very it's very interesting uh it's definitely one for the the rituals etc etc the rituals <laughs> but mark lawrence uh he testified before huac and he named names so oh. kind of a puts a damper on the whole thing but what's funny is that i don't think he realized that if you named names what you also admitted to being a communist you would also be blacklisted so he's not going really up there backfired and, yeah, on, backfired on him because he was like oh i was like a communist i went to like two meetings i was from them for like 12 seconds anyway you know and then it, he was like oh whoa rot row scoob record scratch, record scratch. Yep, that's me <laughs> sitting in front of a panel featuring mccarthy and and an overly zealous bobby kennedy i okay i'm not gonna talk about huac i was reading the transcripts the other day and i will not go into huac we'll do huac another time because this movie has nothing to do with huac apart from the presence of mark lawrence but sucks a suck bitch i hope you got <laughs> i hope you enjoy it in hell where i'm assuming you are because you're probably dead at this point he's fairly old i'm assuming no sympathy for snitches sorry you don't even get the benefit of the doubt from me for somebody like Ilya kazan because at least Ilya kazan admitted that he testified because he was a whole dick and he was just avenging old bitter enmities from the group theater days of the 1930s and that's why he ratted everyone out you know this this man i no sorry mark lawrence no you get no slack from me i'm anti mark lawrence on this podcast well i'm glad we cleared that up we cleared that up also the name mark lawrence reminds me of the lawrence brothers 
Did you guys have the Lawrence Brothers in Australia? I think you'll find we barely had anything here. You guys don't even have I Love Lucy. Why the fuck would you guys have the Lawrence Brothers? You guys have a lot of Dana Andrews movies on television, though, so I don't really we know. We do. I mean, sometimes I'm shocked by what American culture you guys receive and what you don't get at all. It's a very strange mix. We get, I'd say, the worst of work both worlds because often on TV here they'll just play a whole lot of English classic film which is just reprehensibly terrible it's so bad I don't understand um no we just got all of those and then we just got fucking every single episode of MASH on like 24 hour rotation bitches love MASH fucking apparently bitches love MASH and I don't understand it Wow, we're never gonna have Alan Alda on the podcast now. Thanks for that. I'll burn that. I just pronounced his name Alan shit. Alda. What's wrong with us tonight? Where is Todd? We're missing our Todd. We're missing our Todd. Todd, please get. Please come Skype. home. Please come home. Todd, yeah, Todd, Todd ran away from home, and we found her collar. Uh, he was he was he was, he was on he was on a branch, you know, like she'd been snagged on a bush and she was on the front steps and we think she might be in a pound somewhere in the city. She might be in a phone booth somewhere. She's probably lost. She's scared. She's probably wet. So if you've seen our Todd, please call. We miss her so much. We don't have a reward put together. Um right now on my table I have I think fifteen Coke bottle caps that I use for my Coke rewards <laughs> to give my free popcorn at the down. <laughs> That's all I can offer for Todd's safe return. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, man. Oh, my God. oh and this a joke is... I have here in my notes where I just taped <laughs> Laird Lad dot 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 Lard Lad <laughs> with two D's. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so fun okay <laughs> this is gonna be <laughs> one of like i thought the last mini episode we recorded was gonna be our worst one which one was that i already forgot <laughs> it was the Anne southern gene raymond oh yeah one that we tried to record three times um but i think this one i'm sure tiffany will uh, edit this with her amazing skills into something that's listenable um because i think we spent all of 15 minutes discussing <laughs> this gun for hire this episode uh yeah well i had to i had to talk about a lot of other stuff that was bugging me well anyway let's end with the climax of this film when robert preston says go milk a duck or go jack a goose as i wrote it down is that the climax of the movie? That's the climax for the duck. Um, please be quiet. <laughs> um, okay. When he storms the the chemical plant and he makes that old bitch sign his, is it a confession? Yeah, or... something like that. It's something like Naughty that. Naughty boy receipt. And... <laughs> and then the old bitch has a heart attack right before he signs. Yeah. And the last act of melodrama. Convenient. Just cocks it like over the thing without signing it. And like Raven is feeling all levels of betrayal because he sees Robert Preston. He's like, oh my God, Veronica Legs betrayed me. I can't believe the woman I held hostage would turn on me. Yeah, I know. I can't believe we weren't really friends. I thought we had something when I killed that cat. Yeah. And then there's like a shootout. But then he's still alive when Veronica like makes it back into the room. And she's like, I didn't betray you. And he just accepts that um, and then goes to peace, knowing that he saved the nation. So there is like an undercurrent of patriotism 
But it's not it's the kind true. of patriotism I hate, which no. is something you see in something like the Avengers. Well, what's good about this patriotism is that it's completely self-serving patriotism. Yeah. Raven has no interest in the um, political machinations of this particular. He is not. He doesn't give a fuck. All he cares about is that he got past some bum bills. You know, I've been figuring something. That chemical formula. Yeah. But I know what it is. What? Gas. Poison gas. They're selling it to our enemy. So? So tomorrow they'll ship it back in bombs. Japanese breakfast food for America. Do you hear what I said? It's important. This war is everybody's business. Yours too. Mr. Gates is still eating his peppermints. That's my business. Why don't you stop thinking about yourself for a minute? Who else is going to think about me? And he had to listen to Larry Krieger orally, as in A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, fondle him. And I should not have started that sentence because it didn't go where I wanted it to. And that was not meant to be a pun. But um, and he's just, this is just, it's just like the, sh- the cherry on top of the shitty, like, week that he's had in this movie. Um, it's really, he it's really like, he has no concern. Philip Reagan's no good, very bad, terrible week. <laughs> Oh, that should be the episode subtitle. Oh, that's so <laughs> And yeah, and then it, he uh, goes to peace and um, Veronica Lake and Robert Preston are just like, oh, okay, cool, now we can get married. And that's the end of the movie. And that's the end of the movie. And a star was born. A star was indeed born. If only the Lady Gaga movie had been about that. About <laughs> Alan Ladd and his fucked up short forearms. Honestly, they're probably the same height. Alan Ladd and Lady Gaga. Oh, I thought you meant, Al- I thought, I thought you meant like, Lady Gaga's forearms are proportional to Alan Ladd's. And I was like, no, Alan Ladd's definitely have some sort of bone, like some sort of stunted bone growth going on there. Which again, no shame. I I love it. And I love what makes a movie star physically distinct and interesting. In the same sense that I love the fact that, you know, Gary Cooper is a freakish, you know, daddy long legs monster of a man because it lends to so much of uh you know the the his distinct screen presence i love alan ladd i love the fact he's so compact i love that you could fit him in the back of a honda fit oh my god look okay we're all unique and we're all beautiful everyone should be comfortable and happy in their bodies yes it's all right if you don't feel that way at the moment it's okay but trust me we think you're all beautiful yes exactly feel embrace the confidence that alan ladd must have had to go on and just present yourself as being a movie star <laughs> when you the only female lead you ever really have any rapport with is Veronica Lake because she's literally four foot nine. Have the unwarranted confidence of Alan Ladd. I don't know anything about Alan Ladd as a person. I'm sorry if I'm offending the, the laddie acts out there. <laughs> the lactose intolerant. What would be the name of the lad fandom? It's the Laddites. worst thing i've ever heard in my life and i love it um okay well we should probably wrap this up because tiff is probably poking out her eyes by now i love laddites wow that is so funny um okay <laughs> look we tried our best we tried our best we tr- please love god if somebody sees a damp sad canadian small canadian just please <laughs> return scrambling her. down the street 
please. If found, please return to our P.O. box, which is also accepting fan mails and gift of any kind. <laughs> uh, Tiff, please insert P.O. box address here. Uh, as always, you can listen to us on, what are we on now? We're not on. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spreaker. We're on Castbox. We're on, I believe it's called Deezer, which sounds like a Deezer and- nuts joke. And I think we are pending right now for Google Podcasts. So it should be up hopefully uh please subscribe leave us a review uh or don't you like Uh, don't tell us what you don't like uh we don't want to improve um we don't care and yeah we we don't care uh if you see todd uh please return her uh we miss her put in a box and poke holes Uh, in it and (laughs) ship it back to us don't feed after midnight do not feed after midnight yeah, definitely watch this movie. Yes. Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, we love you, Alan Ladd. And we hope that we you always... can follow it. With, you can follow it better than we can because this is Just all we keep, got. Keep your mind open. Uh, keep your heart open. <laughs> and uh, you'll enjoy it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Want to borrow a dollar? I'll get along. Well, I hope your friend owes you something. I owe him. I don't get it. If you're broke, how can you pay him? I can pay him. He's a fat man who likes peppermints. <laughs>